Part Two of Was It an Illusion? A Parson's Story by Amelia B. Edwards. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Louise J. Bell. Part Two of Was It an Illusion? A Parson's Story by Amelia B. Edwards. As I neared the bottom of the hill, a dog cart, drawn by a high stepping chestnut, dashed up to the door of the Greyhound, and the next moment I was shaking hands with Wolstenholme of Balliol. Wolstenholme of Balliol, as handsome as ever, dressed with the same careless dandyism, looking not a day older than when I last saw him at Oxford. He gripped me by both hands, vowed that I was his guest for the next three days, and insisted on carrying me off at once to Blackwater Chase. In vain I urged that I had two schools to inspect tomorrow, ten miles the other side of Drumley, that I had a horse and trap waiting, and that my room was ordered at the feathers. Wollstenholm laughed away my objections. "'My dear fellow,' he said, "'you will simply send your horse and trap back with a message to the feathers, and a couple of telegrams to be dispatched to the two schools from Drumley Station. Unforeseen circumstances compel you to defer those inspections till next week.' And with this, in his masterful way, he shouted to the landlord to send my portmanteau up to the manor-house, pushed me up before him into the dog-cart, gave the chestnut his head, and rattled me off to Blackwater Chase. It was a gloomy old barrack of a place, standing high in the midst of a sombre deer-park some six or seven miles in circumference. An avenue of oaks, now leafless, led up to the house, and a mournful, heron-haunted tarn, in the loneliest part of the park, gave to the estate its name of Blackwater Chase. The place, in fact, was more like a border fastness than an English north-country mansion. Wollstenholme took me through the picture gallery and reception rooms after luncheon, and then for a canter round the park. And in the evening, we dined at the upper end of a great oak hall, hung with antlers and armor and antiquated weapons of warfare and sport. Now, Tomorrow, said my host, as we sat over our claret in front of a blazing log fire, tomorrow, if we have decent weather, you shall have a day's shooting on the moors. 
and on friday if you will but be persuaded to stay a day longer i will drive you over to broomhead and give you a run with the duke's hounds not hunt my dear fellow what nonsense all our parsons hunt in this part of the world by the way have you ever been down a coal pit no then a new experience awaits you i'll take you down carsholton shaft and show you the home of the gnomes and trolls is carsholton one of your own minds i asked all these pits are mine he replied i am king of hades and rule the underworld as well as the upper there is coal everywhere underlying these moors the whole place is honeycombed with shafts and galleries one of our richest seams runs under this house and there are upwards of forty men at work in it a quarter of a mile below our feet here every day another leads right away under the park heaven only knows how far my father began working it five-and-twenty years ago and we have gone on working it ever since yet it shows no sign of failing you must be as rich as a prince with a fairy godmother he shrugged his shoulders well he said lightly i am rich enough to commit what follies i please and that is saying a good deal but then to be always squandering money always rambling about the world always gratifying the impulse of the moment is that happiness i have been trying the experiment for the last ten years and with what result would you like to see he snatched up a lamp and led the way through a long suite of unfurnished rooms the floors of which were piled high with packing cases of all sizes and shapes labeled with the names of various foreign ports and the addresses of foreign agents innumerable what did they contain precious marbles from italy and greece and asia minor priceless paintings by old and modern masters antiquities from the nile the tigris and the euphrates enamels from persia porcelain from china bronzes from japan strange sculptures from peru arms mosaics ivories wood carvings skins tapestries old italian cabinets painted bride chests etruscan terracottas treasures of all countries of all ages never even unpacked since they crossed that threshold which the master's foot had crossed but twice during the ten years it had taken to buy them 
Should he ever open them? Ever arrange them? Ever enjoy them? Perhaps, if he became weary of wandering, if he married, if he built a gallery to receive them. If not, well, he might found and endow a museum, or leave the things to the nation. What did it matter? Collecting was like fox hunting. The pleasure was in the pursuit, and ended with it. We sat up late that first night, I can hardly say conversing, for Wollstenholm did the talking, while I, willing to be amused, led him on to tell me something of his wanderings by land and sea. So the time passed in stories of adventure, of perilous peaks ascended, of deserts traversed, of unknown ruins explored, of hairbreadth scapes from icebergs and earthquakes and storms. And when, at last, he flung the end of his cigar into the fire and discovered that it was time to go to bed, the clock on the mantel-shelf pointed far on among the small hours of the morning. Next day, according to the program made out for my entertainment, we did some seven hours partridge shooting on the moors, and the day next following, I was to go down Carshalton Shaft before breakfast, and after breakfast, ride over to a place some fifteen miles distant, called Pict's Camp, there to see a stone circle and the ruins of a prehistoric fort. Unused to field sports, I slept heavily after those seven hours with the guns, and was slow to wake when Wollstenholm's valet came next morning to my bedside with the waterproof suit in which I was to effect my descent into Hades. Mr. Wollstenholm says, sir, that you had better not take your bath till you come back said this gentlemanly vassal, disposing the ungainly garments across the back of a chair, as artistically as if he were laying out my best evening suit. And you will be pleased to dress warmly underneath the waterproofs, for it is very chilly in the mine. I surveyed the garments with reluctance. The morning was frosty, and the prospect of being lowered into the bowels of the earth, cold, fasting, and unwashed, was anything but attractive. Should I send word that I would rather not go? I hesitated, but while I was hesitating, the gentlemanly valet vanished, and my opportunity was lost. Grumbling and shivering, I got up, donned the cold and shiny suit, and went downstairs. A murmur of voices met my ear 
as I drew near the breakfast room. Going in, I found some ten or a dozen stalwart colliers grouped near the door, and Wollstenholm, looking somewhat serious, standing with his back to the fire. <laughs> Look here, Fraser, he said with a short laugh. Here's a pleasant piece of news. A fissure has opened in the bed of Blackwater Tarn. The lake has disappeared in the night, and the mine is flooded. No Carshalton shaft for you today. Seven foot of water in Jukes's seam, and eight in the old north and south galleries, growled a huge red-headed fellow who seemed to be the spokesman. And it's the Lord's own mercy I happened at night time, or we'd be dead men all, added another. That's true, my man, said Wollstenholm, answering the last speaker. It might have drowned you like rats in a trap. So we may thank our stars it's no worse. And now, to work with the pumps. Lucky for us that we know what to do and how to do it. So saying, he dismissed the men with a good-humoured nod and an order for unlimited ale. I listened in blank amazement. The tarn vanished. I could not believe it. Wollstenholm assured me, however, that it was by no means a solitary phenomenon. Rivers had been known to disappear before now in mining districts, and sometimes, instead of merely cracking, the ground would cave in, burying not merely houses, but whole hamlets in one common ruin. The foundations of such houses were, however, generally known to be insecure long enough before the crash came, and these accidents were not, therefore, often followed by loss of life. And now, he said lightly, you may doff your fancy costume, for I shall have time this morning for nothing but business. It is not every day that one loses a lake and has to pump it up again. Breakfast over, we went round to the mouth of the pit and saw the men fixing the pumps. Later on, when the work was fairly in train, we started off across the park to view the scene of the catastrophe. Our way lay far from the house, across a wooded upland, beyond which we followed a broad glade leading to the tarn. Just as we entered this glade, Wollstenholm rattling on and turning the whole affair into jest, a tall, slender lad, with a fishing-rod across his shoulder, came out from one of the side-paths to the right, crossed the open at a long slant, and disappeared among the tree-trunks 
on the opposite side. I recognized him instantly. It was the boy whom I saw the other day, just after meeting the schoolmaster in the meadow. If that boy thinks he is going to fish in your tarn, I said, he will find out his mistake. What boy? asked Wollstoneholm, looking back. That boy who crossed over yonder a minute ago. Yonder? In front of us? Certainly. You must have seen him. Not I. You did not see him? A tall, thin boy in a gray suit, with a fishing rod over his shoulder? He disappeared behind those scotch firs. Wollstoneholm looked at me with surprise. You are dreaming, he said. No living thing, not even a rabbit, has crossed our path since we entered the park gates. I am not in the habit of dreaming with my eyes open, I replied quickly. He laughed and put his arm through mine. Eyes or no eyes, he said, you are under an illusion this time. An illusion, the very word made use of by the schoolmaster. What did it mean? Could I, in truth, no longer rely upon the testimony of my senses? A thousand half-formed apprehensions flashed across me in a moment. I remembered the illusions of Nicolini, the bookseller, and other similar cases of visual hallucination, and I asked myself if I had suddenly become afflicted in like manner. "'By Jove, this is a queer sight!' exclaimed Wollstoneholm. And then I found that we had emerged from the glade and were looking down upon the bed of what yesterday was Blackwater Tarn. It was indeed a queer sight, an oblong, irregular basin of blackest slime, with here and there a sullen pool, and round the margin an irregular fringe of bulrushes. At some little distance along the bank, less than a quarter of a mile from where we were standing, a gaping crowd had gathered. All pit end, except the men at the pumps, seemed to have turned out to stare at the bed of the vanished tarn. Hats were pulled off, and curtsies dropped at Wollstoneholm's approach. He, meanwhile, came up smiling with a pleasant word for everyone. Well, he said, are you looking for the lake, my friends? You'll have to go down Carshalton Shaft to find it. It's an ugly sight you've come to see, anyhow. 
"'Tis an ugly sight, squire,' replied a stalwart blacksmith in a leathern apron. "'But there's summit uglier, maybe, than the mud over yonder.' "'Something uglier than the mud?' Wolstenholme repeated. "'Will you be pleased to stand this way, squire, "'and look straight across at yon little tump of bulrushes? "'Don't you see nothing?' "'I see a log of rotten timber "'sticking half in and half out of the mud,' said Wolstenholme. "'And something, a long reed, apparently. "'By Jove!' I believe it's a fishing rod. It is a fishing rod, squire, said the blacksmith with rough earnestness. And if yon rotten timber bain't an unburied corpse, mun I never strike hammer on anvil again. There was a buzz of acquiescence from the bystanders. "'Twas an unburied corpse, sure enough. "'Nobody doubted it. "'Wolstenholme made a funnel with his hands "'and looked through it, long and steadfastly. "'It must come out, whatever it is,' he said presently. Five feet of mud, do you say? "'Then here's a sovereign apiece.' for the first two fellows who wade through it and bring that object to land. The blacksmith and another pulled off their shoes and stockings, turned up their trousers, and went in at once. They were over their ankles at the first plunge, and, sounding their way with sticks, went deeper at every tread. As they sank, our excitement rose. Presently, they were visible from only the waist upward. We could see their chests heaving, and the muscular efforts by which each step was gained. They were yet full twenty yards from the goal when the mud mounted to their armpits. A few feet more and only their heads would remain above the surface. An uneasy movement ran through the crowd. "'Call him back, for God's sake!' cried a woman's voice. But at this moment, having reached a point where the ground gradually sloped upward, they began to rise above the mud as rapidly as they had sunk into it, and now, black with clotted slime, they emerge, waist-high. Now they are within three or four yards of the spot. And now, now they are there. They part the reeds. They stoop low above the shapeless object on which all eyes are turned. They half-lift it from its bed of mud, they hesitate, lay it down again, decide, apparently, to leave it there, and turn their faces shoreward. Having come a few paces, the blacksmith remembers the fishing rod, turns back, 
disengages the tangled line with some difficulty and brings it over his shoulder. They had not much to tell, standing all mud from head to heel on dry land again, but that little was conclusive. It was, in truth, an unburied corpse, part of the trunk only above the surface. They tried to lift it, but it had been so long under water, and was in so advanced a stage of decomposition, that to bring it to shore without a shutter was impossible. Being cross-questioned, they thought, from the slenderness of the form, that it must be the body of a boy. There's the poor chap's rod, anyhow, said the blacksmith, laying it gently down upon the turf. I have thus far related events as I witnessed them. Here, however, my responsibility ceases. I give the rest of my story at second hand, briefly, as I received it some weeks later, in the following letter from Philip Wollstoneholm. Blackwater Chase, December 20th, 18— Dear Fraser, My promised letter has been a long time on the road, but I did not see the use of writing till I had something definite to tell you. I think, however, we have now found out all that we are ever likely to know about the tragedy in the Tarn, and it seems that... But no, I will begin at the beginning, that is to say, with the day you left the chase, which was the day following the discovery of the body. You were but just gone when a police inspector arrived from Drumley. You will remember that I had immediately sent a man over to the sitting magistrate. But neither the inspector nor anyone else could do anything till the remains were brought to shore, and it took us the better part of a week to accomplish this difficult operation. We had to sink no end of big stones in order to make a rough-and-ready causeway across the mud. This done, the body was brought over decently upon a shutter. It proved to be the corpse of a boy of perhaps fourteen or fifteen years of age. There was a fracture three inches long at the back of the skull, evidently fatal. This might, of course, have been an accidental injury, but when the body came to be raised from where it lay, it was found to be pinned down by a pitchfork, the handle of which had been afterward whittled off, so as not to show above the water. A discovery tantamount to evidence of murder. The features of the victim were decomposed beyond recognition, but enough of the hair remained to show that it had been short and sandy. As for the clothing, it was a mere mass of rotten shreds, but on being subjected to some chemical process, proved to have once been a suit of lightish gray cloth. 
A crowd of witnesses came forward at this stage of the inquiry, for I am now giving you the main facts, as they came out at the coroner's inquest, to prove that some two years or more ago, Skelton, the schoolmaster, had staying with him a lad whom he called his nephew, and to whom it was supposed that he was not particularly kind. This lad was described as tall, thin, and sandy-haired. He habitually wore a suit corresponding in color and texture to the shreds of clothing discovered on the body in the tarn. And he was much addicted to angling about the pools and streams, wherever he might have the chance of a nibble. And now one thing led quickly on to another. Our pit-end shoemaker identified the boy's boots as being a pair of his own making and selling. Other witnesses testified to angry scenes between the uncle and nephew. Finally, Skelton gave himself up to justice, confessed the deed, and was duly committed to Drumley Jail for willful murder. And the motive? Well, the motive is the strangest part of my story. The wretched lad was, after all, not Skelton's nephew, but Skelton's own illegitimate son. The mother was dead, and the boy lived with his maternal grandmother in a remote part of Cumberland. The old woman was poor, and the schoolmaster made her an annual allowance for his son's keep and clothing. He had not seen the boy for some years when he sent for him to come over on a visit to Pitt End. Perhaps he was weary of the tax upon his purse. Perhaps, as he himself puts it in his confession, he was disappointed to find the boy, if not actually half-witted, stupid, willful, and ill-brought-up. He, at all events, took a dislike to the poor brute, which dislike, by and by, developed into positive hatred. Some amount of provocation there would seem to have been. The boy was as backward as a child of five years old. That Skelton put him into the boy's school and could do nothing with him, that he defied discipline, had a passion for fishing, and was continually wandering about the country with his rod and line, are facts borne out by the independent testimony of various witnesses. Having hidden his fishing tackle, he was in the habit of slipping away at school hours, and showed himself the more cunning and obstinate, the more he was punished. At last there came a day when Skelton tracked him to the place where his rod was concealed, and thence across the meadows into the park, and as far as the tarn. His, Skelton's, account of what followed is wandering and confused. 
he owns to having beaten the miserable lad about the head and arms with a heavy stick that he had brought with him for the purpose but denies that he intended to murder him when his son fell insensible and ceased to breathe he for the first time realized the force of the blows he had dealt he admits that his first impulse was one not of remorse for the deed, but of fear for his own safety. He dragged the body in among the bulrushes by the water's edge, and there concealed it as well as he could. At night, when the neighbors were in bed and asleep, he stole out by starlight, taking with him a pitchfork, a coil of rope, a couple of old iron bars, and a knife. Thus laden, he struck out across the moor, and entered the park by a stile and footpath on the stonely side, so making a circuit of between three and four miles. A rotten old punt used at that time to be kept on the tarn. He loosed this punt from its moorings, brought it round, hauled in the body, and paddled his ghastly burden out into the middle of the lake, which he had noted as a likely spot for his purpose. Here he waited and sunk the corpse, and pinned it down by the neck with his pitchfork. He then cut away the handle of the fork, hid the fishing-rod among the reeds, and believed, as murderers always believe, that discovery was impossible. As regarded the pit-end folk, he simply gave out that his nephew had gone back to Cumberland, and no one doubted it. Now, however, he says that accident has only anticipated him, and that he was on the point of voluntarily confessing his crime. His dreadful secret had, of late, become intolerable. He was haunted by an invisible presence. That presence sat with him at table, followed him in his walks, stood behind him in the schoolroom, and watched by his bedside. He never saw it, but he felt that it was always there. Sometimes he raves of a shadow on the wall of his cell. The jail authorities are of opinion that he is of unsound mind. I have now told you all that there is at present to tell. The trial will not take place till the spring assizes. In the meanwhile, I am off tomorrow to Paris, and thence in about ten days on to Nice, where letters will find me at the Hôtel des Empereurs. Always, dear Fraser, yours, etc., etc., P.W. P.S. Since writing the above, I have received a telegram from Drumley to say that Skelton has committed suicide. No particulars given. 
so ends this strange eventful history by the way that was a curious illusion of yours the other day when we were crossing the park and i have thought of it many times was it an illusion that is the question ay indeed that is the question and it is a question which i have never yet been able to answer certain things i undoubtedly saw with my mind's eye perhaps and as i saw them i have described them withholding nothing adding nothing explaining nothing let those solve the mystery who can for myself i but echo wolstenholme's question was it an illusion end of part two end of was it an illusion a parson's story recording by louise j bell sebastopol california